Welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman, a podcast loaded with practical tips, powerful scripts, personal stories, and simple steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. So get ready to get the information you need to make the impact you want from someone you trust, your friend, parenting expert, Dr. Robin Silverman. Hello and welcome to How to Talk to Kids About Anything, where we give you the tips, scripts, stories, and steps to make even the toughest conversations easier. I'm so thrilled to be your host, Dr. Robin Silverman, child and teen development specialist, author, and speaker, and most importantly, parent of two great kids who give me the opportunity to love, learn, and grow every single day, whether I want to or not. Believe me, I get it. It's not always easy, but we're in this together. And thankfully, we have some wonderful people to call on to get some help and insight when we need it. Now, we are in a world that often checks us off by category. We are a kid or an adult, a girl or a boy in a certain grade, a certain weight category, height category, and so on. These demographics, while kind of faulty, make it easy for many people to make assumptions about who each person is and how each group, whether by age or grade or appearance, is likely to show up in this world. But millions of kids today who go through school and communities in the world do so differently than some other kids. Perhaps they're highly sensitive or they're diagnosed with ADHD or autism, anxiety, dyslexia, or some other kind of learning difference that makes certain situations more challenging for them than for their peers. They are, as my next guest puts it, differently wired. They are exceptional children living in a conventional world. So how can these awesome children thrive in schools and communities that don't always bend to difference? To help us understand differently wired children and how we can become a resource, support, an advocate for these children in our lives, we are turning to my friend and colleague, Debbie Reber. Now, Debbie Reber is a New York Times bestselling author and the founder of Tilt Parenting, a website, top podcast, and social media company for parents who are raising differently wired children. Her next book, Differently Wired, Raising an Exceptional Child in a Conventional World, comes out in June 2018, and I couldn't be more excited for it. She currently lives with her son and husband in the Netherlands. Check her out at www.tiltparenting.com. We are so excited to have you. Welcome, Debbie, to the show. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here today. Well, I'm thrilled. It was exciting to be on your podcast, and I'm thrilled to have you on mine to talk about this very important topic. But before we delve in, I'd love for people to hear from you what gets you up in the morning and what sort of brought you to this amazing work on differently wired children. Well, the short answer of what gets me up in the morning is my differently wired 13 year old son, Asher, and he is also the answer to the second question. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to, Robin, when we met, I was working in the teen girl advocacy space and really involved in empowering and teen girls and writing self-help books for them. And then I had this kid, a son, and as I started parenting him, realized that this was not going to be kind of a traditional, typical parenting path. And with every passing year, and we got more and more information that he was moving through the world in a different way. And the traditional school approaches and, 
you know, these rites of passage that my friends' kids were going through were not happening the same way for me and for our family. And so I realized that, you know, I'm part of a we're we're a minority, but there's a lot of us. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we're we're everywhere raising these kids who are differently wired, and it's really difficult to get resources and information, and even just emotionally navigate this journey. And so I decided I wanted to do something about it, which is why I created Tilt Parenting to support parents like me. Mm. So important, and I love the work you're doing. I can't imagine that anybody listening to this podcast, whether a parent or an educator or a coach doesn't have someone in their family or knows somebody quite well or have somebody in their classroom that is differently wired. So I want to start there, right where your title is, because I love the title of your podcast and I love the title of your book. Some of us have been exposed to the term neurodiverse, but really... What do the two terms differently wired or neurodiverse mean to you? And and what makes it so you used it for the title of your book? Yeah, I mean, I, I think as I was going through this and really coming to understand who Asher is and the way that he is different and he has a diagnosis of ADHD, he's highly gifted and he also has a diagnosis of Asperger's or autism spectrum disorder. And I really started just looking at all of these kids who are moving through the world with multiple diagnoses. And in my, you know, what I saw was that separating kids into different diagnostic buckets, Mm -hmm. you know, didn't necessarily help our kids. It kind of kept them separate. It kept the parents separate when really we're all kind of dealing with the same failings of the educational system, or, you know, we're all struggling to get insurance to cover occupational therapy, you know, we're all kind of in this together. And, and so much of the terminology and language around neurodiversity is negative, you know, Mm -hmm. it, it has stigma attached to it. And so as I was thinking about tilt parenting, and how I wanted this to kind of be a more positive experience and and really just from the get-go help parents feel optimistic and empowered if their child is neurodiverse rather than feeling like this is you know this is a a burden that we have mm. to bear or this is something you know really negative happening to our family i wanted to reframe it and my you know my son asher helped me in that, you know, decision, I would run names by him and he would say, mm, nope, negative connotation, mm-hmm. you know, he, mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I really just wanted to turn things on its head. And I, I believe so deeply that different is not bad, you know, neurodiverse, it's a difference. It's not a deficit. It, there's nothing broken here that needs to be fixed. I, I love what you just said there. And I, I just want to underscore that and add that you know, we, we interviewed Gail Saltz, who did a book called The Power of Different, and you and I have talked about that a bit, but um, that she talks about how th- your, their gifts are, are hidden in these diagnoses so much of the time. Um, and there are other experts that also talk about that, that when we diagnose somebody and then we, pro- we provide this sort of negative connotation, we lose out on these gifts that 
that so many children can give us who are neurodiverse. And I know that your son also has these amazing gifts. And if we just looked at it negatively, we might not uncover them and they may not be around to bless the world with these gifts. Mm hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I love Dr. Saltz's book, The Power of Different and, and the way that she sees difference as well. I mean, in many ways, I like to even use the terminology of modern day evolution. I mean, I think when you consider the numbers that, you know, approximately one in five kids is some way neurodiverse, mm -hmm. then that is, these aren't outliers, you know, this is part of part of how we're moving forward as a society. Yes, I agree with you. I agree with you. So now that, you know, we've you you obviously have clearly talked to your son about his diagnoses. You're very open with him about it. Many parents worry that if they do talk to their children about their diagnoses, that they might scare them or they might limit them or they might make them feel bad in some way. So what do you think about this? And, and do you feel that parents should be talking to their kids about their diagnoses if they have them? Yeah, it's a tough question. I mean, I want to just preface this by saying that I would never, you know, say what another parent should do, mm -hmm. you know, with regards to their child. It is a personal decision, but I believe very deeply that we do ourselves society and most of all our kids a disservice when we're not open with them about who they are because these are kids who know that they're different you know when asher first recognized that he had adhd we only had a preliminary diagnosis but i was reading a book aloud to him in bed and he turned to me there was a character in there with adhd he turned to me and he said is that what i have mm. and i said I said, well, do you recognize some of yourself in this character? And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah, that's actually one of the things we think might be going on with you. And we just kind of went on from there. But, you know, when we told Asher, when we had more information and we told him about his diagnoses, his instant sense was of relief. Mm -hmm. And that's not, that, it's not unusual. I hear that from parents all the time because suddenly these kids feel like the missing piece of the puzzle, you know, has just been fit and they, they finally get who they are. And that feels really good. Right. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. And, you know, our children do want to embrace who they are and they do want to feel that somebody understands them. Because every time we, you know, we make them feel like we don't get them. You know, and they don't, you know, we don't have, we don't have any understanding about what's going on with them. They, that doesn't make them feel good. They want to feel like somebody understands them and that they can also understand themselves. It must have been really great for him to recognize himself in a character, in a book, say, mm -hmm. I'm not alone. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, when we told him about the Asperger's diagnosis, he, you know, later on came downstairs and he said, and I said, well, what, what did you think? And he said, I thought that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of it. You know, it was just not a big deal yeah. for him. But, but I think it also for us as a family, it started us on this path of being really open and transparent and being able to better support him 
starting to be able to teach him how to advocate for himself. And again, you can't advocate for yourself if you don't know what's going on or, you know, how to convey your needs to other people. Right. You, you need to be able to say, this is who I am and this is what I need if you're going to advocate for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. So when parents have a child who seems to be rejected or passed over or misunderstood, sometimes parents will become isolated. They get stuck in sort of the comparison cycle. They might become fearful about what's going on or worry that their child is not keeping up with the Joneses. I know that uh, when I was reading your book, you talk about being in a parenting group and, you know, you start to see the differences very young between, you know, your child and other people's children. So for those parents or educators who are listening, who have a neurodiverse child in their home or in their classroom or in their after school program, what are some tips that you have to help the adults be more tolerant or understanding or less fearful or even more supportive of these neurodiverse children? Well, I think it's really important that we as parents raising differently wired kids are, again, transparent and open in a way that is still feels safe. I wouldn't say, you know, walk around with a megaphone mm -hmm. and announce what's going on, you know, to everyone. It, it can be on a need to know basis. But, you know, we set the tone for how our kids are going to be perceived. We set the tone for how, how we can experience difficult moments with our kids or how their peers might handle a difficult moment with our child. And so when we are open about it. We use open language. We talk about it in a confident way and kind of, you know, almost matter of factly, like this is what's going on. You know, if he gets upset, a book always helps or, you know, just mm -hmm. this is information. This isn't a disease. This isn't, you know, a it's not a behavioral issue, even though it may come out like that. But it's really giving people the opportunity to to be in the know and feel like they have the tools they need and to also know that this isn't something they need to, they need to be afraid of. It's just something they need to be aware of so they can better support the child. How do you counsel the parent who tends to, to look at their child and say, wait a second, my child isn't doing that yet? Or my child may never do that because of their difference. How do you talk to a parent and help them to, uh, you know, not guide their life with that sort of comparison lens on and to embrace the child that they have since so many of us have neuro neurodiverse children? Yeah, I like to, you know, think of the phrase compare and despair, because that's something I think, you know, it's human nature to mm -hmm. compare in many ways. And so I, I think there's a couple of pieces to that. One is to, first of all, recognize when you're doing it and don't beat yourself up about it, right. because, you know, we can be so tough on ourselves and it, and it is normal. It's just something we need to be aware of when, when we're doing it. But I like to talk about this idea of timelines and just recognizing that, you know, not just neurodiverse kids, all kids are on their own timelines. And there really is, 
there's no way to do this. There's no one way that this needs to look. And I think it's so important for us to to just know that when our kids feel confident in who they are, they they feel secure, which is really our job as their parents to to help them feel secure in who they are and not push them to do things when they're not ready. You know, it will come together for them. It may not be when our neighbor's kid, you know, does the same thing, but it will happen. And so it's really just reminding ourselves that our kids are on their own timeline, but their future is not written. You know, there's no real limit to what our kids can do and try to stop that compare and despair cycle when we notice it happening. Right. Because once we start comparing, there's really no winner there. It's, it tends to, uh, have an impact on us, but it also can have a profoundly negative impact on our on our kids because they feel like they can't measure up yeah they know I mean they're aware already of their you know quote-unquote shortcomings you know many of these kids are super sensitive many of these kids are highly perfectionistic and they are pretty tuned in to you know what where they're lagging in comparison with their peers, be it in athletics or in academics or in social situations. And so if that's something they're already grappling with, you know, if they're feeling any sort of pressure or disappointment, or even just our energy around something, they will feel that. So it's again, it's creating that safe and secure place, letting them you know, giving them opportunities to try things in a way that feels safe and that they know we've got their back and they'll do it when they're ready. Mm-hmm. So, so important to, to put high beams on that they'll do it when they're ready and that the timeline may be different for your child than for another child, but that doesn't make your timeline bad. Yeah, not at all. You know, I, I wrote about this in my book, but I live in Amsterdam now. This is a city where kids are biking to school when they're like three. I mean, it's ridiculous. These kids are on two wheels and biking all over the city. (laughs) They're going, you know, independently to school often by the time they're 10. They're biking a couple kilometers with friends and, you know, and my kid's 13 and he is just now starting to bike on his own bike instead of on the back of mine. And he, and only with me, only if I'm with him, um, he's just not there. He's not paying attention enough to traffic or to, you know, the stoplights or it's just, it's a busy city and it's just, he's not there. He'll get there. No biggie. Mm -hmm. And, and just in the past year to see his growth and now him choosing to be on his bike, it's, amazing and he feels so proud of himself because he's he's ready for it you know mm-hmm. yeah you have such a great attitude about it and it's something to to look towards as a parent that you, you don't need to compare anybody to anybody else and he's actually showing a great great progress within himself and that's all mm-hmm. that we're looking for right progress exactly. within our own selves yeah i love that so i know that you know, when we're coming to this type of podcast, we're always looking for really great scripts. I know that you're really on board with that as well. We have educators and coaches and parents listening in. And if you could imagine for us having a child in front of you who is differently wired, could you tell us 
What words could you say or how can we talk to kids about their neurodifferences so that they can feel good about who they are? They can feel empowered to advocate for themselves and can help to change the stigmas that often follow them around. Yeah, I think the first thing I would say, you know, just in terms of bigger picture strategy is talk to our kids about concepts like brain science, Mm -hmm. you know, when they can understand that this is a neuro difference. And, you know, most kids are natural learners, they're curious about this Mm -hmm. stuff. And what could be more interesting than brain science, right? And, you know, so looping them in pretty early on. And, you know, when they're really young, I think it's important to talk about, you know, we are all Everyone's working on things. Yes, We're I say all... that all the time. <laughs> that is my number one thing to say to my kids. Everybody's <laughs> working on something. Absolutely. You know, and I think that is just such a great place to start because often these kids, you know, they might be going to occupational therapy from a pretty young age and they at a certain point are going to realize, well, why isn't, you know, Joey going to OT? Where's his therapist? Yeah, like, hmm, sure. Well, um, you know, so um, I think it's important to, you know, bring it into your family. If you have other children, you know, this is something that I'm really working on right now. I struggle with this. Mm. It's, um, and this is something that doesn't come as naturally to you, Mm. but that's why we're getting you some extra support around this. And it's also part of what makes you uniquely who you are. Mm -hmm. So it's a gift, but it also means that there are some skills that you're going to want to work on a little bit that will, I, I talk about the future a lot, especially with older kids, you know, while you are perfectly fine and amazing as you are, there's nothing wrong with you. There are certain things that I know you'll want to do in the future. And if you're able to master some of these other skills, it's going to make it easier for you to reach those goals in the future. So, you know, with older kids, having that kind of dialogue where you're just letting them know, you know, this is the world we live in. And these things can be a barrier to you getting what you want. And if we can work on those skills, it's going to be a lot easier for you to reach your goals. Yeah, really important. And, you know, this this is something that they have to deal with, any child has to deal with when it comes to a stigma that might follow them. This one's short, this one's very uh, tall, this one's a girl who's playing baseball, and my child who... We, we adopted my kids, so, she, you know, she knows she needs to know how and he needs to know how to talk about that when people say uh, something, you know, have questions about it, but also, you know, wrong information. So what about the stigmas that follow a child who's neurodiverse? If somebody um, is saying something to them in uh, a negative way, whether it's in a school-related situation or a community-based situation, what can we say to our children that can help them react in a positive way and, and help them to know what to say in that circumstance? Yeah, unfortunately, this is, it's kind of a heartbreaking thing. I think most of us as parents go through when we realize that we need to kind of break the news to our kids that because of the way that they're wired, they are 
you know, there, there are going to be times in their lives where they may be perceived differently or as less than or not treated the same or even made fun of or bullied and all of those things. So it's, it's a really difficult thing. I think, you know, for kids who can feel confident in who they are, and this goes back to, you know, letting them in on what's happening from an early age and helping them talk about their and recognize the gifts that come with their diagnoses and who they are um, giving. So they feel empowered to speak up for, for who they are. They have the information, you know, with Asher, he knows statistics, right. About ADHD and, and his other differences. So when he was at camp, for example, this past summer and another kid who just had ADD as opposed to ADHD, you know, said, well, ADD is not as bad as ADHD and kind of was giving Asher a hard time. Mm-hmm. He was able to say, well, actually, and he, you know, he gave some statistics, he gave information, and it was just very kind of matter of fact. Um, I think the more information our kids can have, and also just being aware that, you know, there are going to be people that they encounter in everyday life who are not going to get them or appreciate them. And that happens to everyone. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. You know, we will just find our people. No kidding. I like that. We'll just find our people. That should be, maybe that's your next book. Um, <laughs> so let's flip this a bit. We, we have many parents and educators who have neurotypical children in their families and their classrooms and their after school programs. So what about those kids who are neurotypical? Is it okay to talk to them about neurodifferences in their peers or their friends or their siblings? I think absolutely. I, I really believe that this is where so much work can be done in fostering a generation where we can kind of reduce the stigma and where neurotypical peers can be true allies because you know what we know about kids is that when they're younger they just see differences difference right they don't Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rank it or you know Mm -hmm. so um you know I think it's really important to introduce conversations with you know whether it's our kids cousins or you know the kid down the street you know someone they know from a play group whoever it is when opportunities arise for, you know, a child, maybe a child throws a tantrum or something, instead of just kind of whisking them away and, you know, leaving that other kid with, you know, deer in headlights, like, oh my gosh, I've never seen something like that before. I think it's really important to talk with them about it. Maybe not in that moment, but you know what? That was kind of a big reaction, wasn't it? Did you notice that? Yeah, I did too. You know, I've had many of these conversations, by the way. Over yeah, the please keep of, going. We yeah. want to hear it. <laughs> And, you know, just, you know, and just telling the child, just so you know, this wasn't something that you did and, you know, you're not responsible for this. But, you know, my son really struggles when he perceives something to be unfair. And that means that sometimes competition, even though you guys were playing a friendly game, it it went in a way he wasn't expecting. And that's really hard for him to deal with. He, he does not have the ability the way you do to to lose gracefully yet, but we're working on it. And, you know, so kind of just talking about things in that way, this is something that's going on. And 
he's working on it. And, you know, I really appreciate you being so such a good friend and sitting here waiting for him while he's doing this. And you know what, give him a few minutes and he'll be back and he won't even remember it happened. You know, mm-hmm. you know, I, when kids, you know, again, I've had that conversation with Asher's, you know, best friend from when he was four, they're still best friends, we're gonna he has a sleepover at his house in two weeks in Seattle. Um, he grew up, you know, seeing all kinds of behavior from Asher, but we always were very open about it. We explained what was going on. I also check in with the neurotypical kid. Are you feeling uncomfortable right now? Would you you like to end the play date now? You know, do you want to just hang out with me? We could finish the game while he calms down, Mm -hmm. you know, but having that open communication, you know, normalizing it, letting them know it's okay. This is this is part of who he is. And it's not about you. Don't take it personally. And empathizing that the child might the other child might be, you know, a little freaked out depending on the behavior they've seen. I like that that you are also recognizing the impact that a neurodiverse child has on a neurotypical child especially Mm -hmm. when they don't have information because obviously neurodiverse kids can have big reactions and big feelings and big behavior that can be very tough to understand. It can be tough to see. And often when we don't talk about it, that's when the sort of typical peer can become intolerant they can be, um, they can lack understanding, they can reject a child, they can even come back with kind of aggressive counter behavior Mm -hmm. um, to an atypically developing child. So when they have the information, then they can see through a lens of understanding, rather than saying, wait a second, if I was in that same situation, I would never do that. Therefore, this child's wrong, they're bad, Mm-hmm. something's clearly wrong with them. You're absolutely right. And, you know, in a school setting in particular, and I'll just share a quick story with mm-hmm. you. In one of Asher's three schools he was in between kindergarten and second grade, he he was really struggling with a lot of just kind of classroom etiquette, you know, group projects or not blurting out or if something went the way he wasn't expecting he would explode. And, you know, I know his explosions, they were loud and Mm. intense and sometimes scary. Mm. And, you know, that was an opportunity. The opportunity wasn't taken, but that would have been an opportunity for the teacher to talk to the class as a whole, maybe separately, and then also with Asher. But to talk about, you know, you probably noticed that Asher is struggling in these kinds of situations. Well, that's because Asher's brain processes this kind of thing differently. And his body actually goes into flight or fright, what a flight or fight mode, you know, and he, he feels like he's under attack and he's reacting and that, you know, have you ever felt scared of something, you know, and just kind of bring the kids in, talk about it openly. And actually when you do that, kids can start to stand up for these kids, right? You know, oh, this is hard for Asher. Maybe we could help him with this. Or why don't you let him sit here? He doesn't get as upset when he gets to have this seat every time. Mm -hmm. You know, when we do this at a young age, then our kids grow up 
thinking this is just another piece of who this person is. Mm -hmm. It's just who they are. And I can actually support and understand them instead of otherizing them, which is kind of what happens in most circumstances. Yeah, I was just going to ask you about that, about how our typically developing children can help neurodiverse children, you know, and really become advocates for them. And I like that you're talking about how we can give them the scripts, we can give them the information so that when they see a a situation where a, a child is having a big reaction, that instead of running away, they can actually provide the information and say the script, essentially, so that other people can become more understanding and more knowledgeable about the circumstance and maybe more tolerant right in that particular moment. Yeah, definitely. And I I think, again, that young age, that late preschool, early elementary school years, I think are so critical because... If you can foster in that tolerance and that understanding, then that will carry through, you know, into the middle school years and beyond. And but if just as you said before, but if we're seeing these kids with really what comes across as negative behavior, we're going to just keep pushing them away. And they're bad. They're bad. They're disruptive. They're scary. And then everyone starts to talk and it goes from there. Mm-hmm. It does. It does. And, you know, then you start to put it through a lens of, you know, this child wants to be bad or this child, you know, is being a prima donna. Uh, they're they're You know, want special circumstances for them when that is not what's going on at all, because you can't look through a typical lens when you're talking about atypical children. Definitely. And if I can just share another quick little yes, story, please. this this, is, this isn't my story to tell, but Mel- Melissa Wardy, who we both know. Oh, no, she's so great. She's awesome. We she was her. on my podcast. Um, <laughs> yes, shout out. Uh, she was on my podcast, you know, last month and her daughter, Amelia, struggles with anxiety. Yes. And she told this amazing story about how in the Girl Scouts, Amelia's really found this tribe of supportive friends and they were on a field trip and someone leading the docent or someone leading the field trip asked Amelia a question and she didn't answer. And she said, what is the cat? Cat got your tongue. And, you know, which is not something you say no, to no. someone struggling with anxiety. And one of her friends, one of her Girl Scout friends said, oh, that's Amelia. She just needs a few minutes, you know, 20 minutes to warm up. She's oh. got anxiety, you know. What a I mean, sweet potato. I like that. I know. I mean, if if good friend. If we could all if we could all have someone who has her back like that, but that's who I believe that's who kids are. They yes. want to be helpful. They yes. they need the information though in order to be helpful, to be allies and to really support these kids. Yes, don't underestimate our kids. They can be some of the best supporters of our kids and if if we give them the information and the chance to do it. So I like all of that. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. So what about the parent who is listening or the teacher who's listening and they want to know how best they can help this child? How can we advocate for our child when they are entering a situation, whether it's school or a community event or a a program, where there's going to be a lot of typically developing children 
and maybe your child is is a minority and may need some special circumstances. How can we advocate for our child? Well, I think it's important to prepare people ahead of time as much as you can. And I learned this lesson the hard way Mm. and I won't go into detail, but I, you know, let's just say that I wasn't always upfront because I was afraid maybe they wouldn't accept Asher into their program. So, you know, but really that's doing everyone involved a great disservice. And so giving people the information upfront, I tend to call people ahead of time, you know, if it's like a camp or an extracurricular activity or a gymnastics class or whatever, and making sure that the people working with our kids are know what's up, you know, they know the situations that could be challenging for a child. And most of all, they know how to support our child in case of a situation where they get triggered. And, you know, so with Asher, for example, reading is something that really regulates him. Mm-hmm. And I just... Any camp, you know, I used to send them to a ton of different summer camps during the summer in the States, just day camps. But I made sure he always had several books in his backpack. And I made sure the counselors knew if there's a problem, give him a book, give him some space, and he'll get himself together. And, you know, if I hadn't told them what was going on, then they would have been deer in headlights if if Asher got triggered by something and would have been bad for everybody involved. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So if you know something that's going to help your child in these types of situations, make sure that you relay them to the people who are going to be with your child so that they have the tools ready and they also have the understanding of what to do when your child's triggered. Absolutely. And I also think it's important to let our kids know, you know, if we have a differently wired child, let them know that we've told the adults what's up, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, because we want our kids to also know that they have an adult there who has their back, who understands the situation, and who will be there to support them if something goes wrong, or they get upset. So, you know, the last thing we want to do is leave them hanging and, and, have them feel as though they're in completely unsupported when they're in the middle of having a meltdown or something. So before we get to the, our, our big tip and our resource of the week, I want to flip this a little bit and just push and ask if your child is differently wired and we are making some of these adjustments and helping them Sometimes children can feel that they're being catered to. So how do we help our children who may be neurodiverse feel that they too are using their strengths, that they are making a difference to somebody else, that they are strong in many areas? How do we highlight that in our differently wired children? I think it's so important to notice all the bright spots, you know, to as often as possible, find them doing things that are interesting, that are unique, that are different, you know, from their peers. Because as you said earlier, all of these kids come with really unique gifts. Mm -hmm. And they can feel that they're missing out or that, you know, they're getting passed over, or they just don't maybe have 
have what it takes, you know, in the same way that, that their friends do. So, you know, just calling things out, not in a, you know, a kind of empty way, um, but really having those, you know, well, I really noticed that you made a really good choice there. I noticed that you were really sensitive to how, you know, your friend was feeling in this situation. Um, I noticed that you just spent an hour working on this project without even looking up. It must be incredible to be able to dive into your creativity like that, you know, Mm. so Mm. just always looking for opportunities to, to bring attention to their strengths. And if there's strengths and gifts that are connected to their neurodiversity, then that's kind of the golden ticket. Mm. I love that. And just want to, to spotlight something you you said in the very beginning of that paragraph, which was that you don't want it to be empty. This is not empty praise. This is not good job. This is specific to your child and hopefully specific to their special gifts so that it is incredibly meaningful to them Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that they can take what you're saying about how they're practicing trombone or doing that art project or reading that book and they can generalize it to some other things that they're doing along the way even when you're not there yeah and also you know just emotionally too you know a lot of these kids are highly sensitive they feel things very deeply mm-hmm. and they can get overwhelmed easily sure. and you know there's a lot of conversations to be had in there you know of empathy and compassion as they're experiencing those big feelings and at the same time we can say you know it can be really challenging to feel so much and it's also gives you the potential to live such an incredibly full life. You know, when you feel so much, the possibilities for feeling and experiencing kind of the most incredible things in life, they're there for you. So, you know, it comes with pros and cons, but it's really fantastic that you can feel things this deeply. Mm. Yes, that is really important. And I like that we're not only highlighting their strengths, but we're also looking at potential weaknesses or something that may be viewed as a potential weakness and also seeing the strength in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's strengths in everything. Yeah, there are strengths in everything. And that is an important takeaway. But I want to hear your one big tip. I want to know, out of everything that you've said, or maybe that you haven't said, what is the biggest takeaway that you would hope parents or educators or coaches would take from this podcast episode? Oh, goodness. I would say that, you know, my biggest dream is that people stop looking at difference as a deficit and know that, again, this isn't an epidemic. These aren't children who are broken. It's not a disease, you know, being neurodiverse it is a fascinating thing. These kids are the change makers of the future. They are creative problem solvers. They are passionate. They're incredible humans. And I think we're all responsible for helping them reach their potential. So, you know, if parents, every parent, whether you're raising a neurotypical or an atypical child, just kind of check in with yourself about your assumptions about neurodiversity get clear on where you might be drawing assumptions or, you know, your own belief system might 
carry some stigma with it and start to notice those things and question those beliefs. Because when we do that, you know, we can really change how these kids move through the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, such progress in our own brains when we challenge our past thoughts. So I really appreciate what you're saying there. Give us the resource of the week. Where can people go to learn more about you and your podcast, your book that's coming out, um, all the good information that you'd want people to know? Well, my website is tiltparenting.com. And that's where I host the podcast. It's also the Tilt Parenting Podcast. I, I'm coming up on 100 episodes, which is mind blowing wow. to me. Wow. And Congratulations. I know. Thank you. I have to have a little party. Yes. Okay. Um, <laughs> so all the episodes are there. I also have some blogs on there. And I have a seven day differently wired challenge for parents who want to introduce some quick tips into their life for seven days that will help them shift their thinking or an action that will change their experience with their differently wired kids. And then all the links to me on social media, some info about the book. And starting in t- early 2018, I will be making available the first uh, chapter of the book available as a sneak peek. Oh, exciting. Well, I can already tell you it's fabulous. <laughs> oh, thank you. So excited to have been able to read your book in advance. And um, I, I think it's it's very powerful and just terrific work. I love what you've said on this podcast about all the gifts that that children have, whether they're uh, atypical or typical. And I also really like the piece on how we can script for our children, how to advocate for themselves, but also how typically developing children can also be great resources and advocates for our neurodiverse kids. So thank you so much for all of that today. Oh, you're so welcome. I love this conversation. I do too. You are very wonderful to speak with. We can, oh. we, we're going to do this again, definitely when your book comes out. I'm so excited about it already. <laughs> Me too. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, I've got my takeaways and sweet friends. I know you have yours. Let's discuss them. Come up on Facebook. Go to facebook.com slash Dr. Robin Silverman or let's chat about it at drrobinsilverman.com or twitter.com slash Dr. Robin. And if you love this podcast like I did, and I really feel like we've gotten some great tips and scripts here, would you kindly go up to iTunes, rate, review it, send it out, let people know about it so that they can get the outstanding solutions and use them in their own homes. Debbie Reber has provided so many important tips here, and I know people will appreciate it in their schools and in their homes. I truly appreciate it. That's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for tuning in to How to Talk to Kids About Anything. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com. I look forward to weathering the storms and enjoying the sunny side of life together. And please remember, even when it seems like nothing is going right and you are going about in your head and thinking of all the things that you've done wrong, no, 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 don't do that. We all have those days. You've got this. You're here. You're getting the information you need. And on the days that we fall short, never forget there's always tomorrow. Parenting is the ultimate do-over. And as there are moments when we doubt our know-how and our choices and our sweet, sweet sanity, please know you are 10 times the parent you think you are. You really are. Until next time, this is Dr. Robin Silverman with How to Talk to Kids About Anything. Please tune in again and keep connecting through conversation. See you next week. 
listening to How to Talk to Kids About Anything with Dr. Robin Silverman. For more information on books, articles, speaking engagements, or curriculum, please visit drrobinsilverman.com.